Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 17, 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, it is good to be together with you, and happy Father's Day. Now, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but Father's Day always has felt like a kind of a weird holiday because, one, we all have dads, or you wouldn't be here. That's the way things work in life. Um, but the reality is whether that dad was good, bad, or ugly, on a day like today, we celebrate them all, right? Um, it becomes the moment of celebration. And for me growing up, Father's Day was kind of difficult because I didn't have the greatest of dads. Some of you know my story. I mean, my dad abandoned my mom, my two older sisters, me when I was in middle school. Basically wasn't around even before that. Failed to pay child support, forcing my mom, who'd never worked a professional job outside of the home, to go to work. My sister, who's in high school, to quit high school and to work full-time to help pay the bills. And today, my dad is somewhere on the other side of the globe, chasing after something. We've reached out, and he said, please stop. And what is he chasing? I don't know. But frankly, I don't care as much because he's not chasing after his family. I don't know what it is his heart's chasing, but it's not us. It's not what God has for him, and it breaks my heart. Somebody came up to me first service, and they said, I pray that you forgive your dad. I have forgiven my dad. I don't want this to be like, oh, Gabe's like, really? No, like, there's been a lot of wrestling um, in there, and the door is open the reality is, is he doesn't want to walk through it. But I pray that one day he will, that reconciliation would be the final note on that story. But it's because of that experience and really a longer legacy on both my mom and my dad's side of fragmented families that for me, the moment I looked into Allie's eyes for the first time, the moment I looked at her and I said, I do. First child alive in the womb of my wife, I made as like a primary goal in my life that my kids would one day be able to look at me and be proud of their dad. Really, one of my life goals is to live up to one of these mugs, you know, <laughs> you know, like best dad ever, you know, like, and probably going to put an afternoon beverage in this thing and sip out of it this afternoon. I mean, like, this is seriously one of my goals that when my kids aren't angry at me anymore, they'll be able to say and look me in the eyes sincerely.
know is like Michael Scottish, right? Like, confirmation for that. Um, and this is like the text exchange we had as we were, like, as this happened. She goes, did you order a best dad ever coffee mug? Ha ha ha, yes, for a sermon. Sure, she says. And then I say, or at least mostly for my sermon. To which she replies with that, right? Like, she totally, she knows me. Like, and listen, listen, okay, you can't blame me. We're, this is human nature, right? We all have somebody in our lives that we really want to impress, that we want to attract their attention, their approval. And this could happen at home. It could be at work. It could be at school. It could be family, friends, or even complete strangers. But we're all living our lives in front of somebody, before somebody. The question is, who's your audience? Who's your audience? Whose attention and approval are you vying for? And this is a really important question, and here's why. This is so crucial because the, atten- the, the audience you choose determines the life you live. The audience you choose, it determines the shape, the trajectory, the movement of where your life goes. For example, if your primary audience in your life is your parents, then you will constantly be according to their vision for your life. If your primary audience in your life is your friends, then whenever there is a crisis of conflict, always cave to their peer pressure. If your primary audience is your colleagues, your coworkers, then you will become a workaholic. The reality is, is when we start to garner these audiences in our lives, it can become extraordinarily exhausting, and we just can't survive it. And so what happens if this happened to you yet? It's happened to me a couple times, but if it hasn't happened to you, it will there, there comes this breaking point where you finally say, okay, I'm done worrying about what people think. Who cares? Who cares what other people think? The problem with that framework of thinking is that no matter how much we push against it, the reality is you still care. You can't fight it. I want to kind of live without those shackles, kind of. Because here's the other thing. If let's just say, for argument's sake, you could live in such a complete disregard for the thoughts and the feelings and the opinions of those that you care about that are around you, what will happen? If you are actually granted that, what we sometimes say we deeply, what is all the people you care about most in your life? And you will be left alone, crushed You're not going to be left standing. You're going to be crushed under your own expectations you have for yourself. Because really the highest expectations anyone has on your life are really the ones you've placed on yourself. You can't survive that. No one can live without an audience. And Os Guinness, he's a thoughtful author as well as a social critic. He's going to be with us here this fall. He brilliantly makes this insight in his book, The Call. He says, only madmen, geniuses, and supreme egotists do things purely for themselves. It's easy to buck a crowd, not too hard to march to a different drummer, but it's truly difficult, perhaps impossible, to march only to your own drumbeat. Most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. Who's your audience? It determines the life you live. There's probably few decisions that have as significant an impact on your life as this one. And when it's come to Christians throughout history, for Christians, Christians 
have laid down their lives. They've gone against the grain of culture. They have gone the extra mile even for enemies, sacrificing comfort, fame, and promotion, convinced that the God of the Bible is the only audience worthy of their lives. Why? Why is the God of the Bible the best audience? Have you ever stopped and actually thought about that question? Why is the God of the Bible the best audience to live your life before? There's a lot of ways in which you could go about answering that question. And listen, if you get that wrong, or even if we fully don't understand the full ramifications of that why, then I don't think we'll get anything else right. Just saying that God should be your primary audience is but deeply knowing and being convinced as to why he is the best audience, that's what changes the very framework and trajectory of our lives. And by God's grace, early on in history, God gives us a window as to why he is indeed the best audience to live our lives before. So if you haven't already, let's turn our Bible, turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, where we're reintroduced to an extraordinarily familiar character in the book of Genesis. When Abram was 90, 99 years old. Now, that's old, right? So quick review as to how he got to 99 years. If you've been with us in the book of Genesis, this is going to be a review to get us to where he's one year shy of triple digits, right? That's pretty astounding. He's almost got the smucker's jar. He's really close. How did he get there? Okay, so when he was a spring chicken in his 70s, God showed up to him and Sarai back in Ur, like this hometown with his dad, Terah, and Sarah was barren. She couldn't have any children, and God came to Abram, and he said, I'm going to give you kids, and through your kids, you're going to actually have a nation, and I'm going to give you land, and through these people, everyone and everywhere, the whole earth shall be blessed. And it's this promise, really, back in Genesis 11 and 12, that's teased out throughout the book of Genesis and really throughout the whole narrative of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. So Abram, he leaves his family, his kindred, his land, and he goes to a place he doesn't know. He follows God. And then we get to about Genesis 15. We don't know how long it's been, but Genesis, or Abram is frustrated with God. He's exasperated. He's like, look, I left everything I knew to come out to this land I don't know. And you said that all of this promise and all this blessing was going to come through my kids, but I don't have a baby. So what's going on? And he's very real. He has real talk with God. And God does something truly astounding. He makes a covenant, a promise with Abraham. But what's truly unique in the ancient Near Eastern context is as Tyler preached a few weeks ago, there's always a higher power and a lower power. Somebody who's got a lot of strength and influence and somebody who's got very little strength and influence in these covenants. And usually the one who has the lower influence has to make a lot of promises to the one who has a lot of power. But here, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, it's all based upon me, upon my character, upon my competency. And if I don't follow through, then my life is on the line, but it has nothing to do with you, Abram. Astounding. Genesis 16, it's, okay, it's 10 years, 120 months of disappointment, no kids. They're there in the land of Canaan. Sarah, and she says, hey, Abram, I think it's time you marry my slave girl. So Abram is eight. Six years old, marries this young slave girl, and they make one of the biggest mistakes in history that has generational ramifications for the world. 
This morning's text is 13 years after this massive mistake. One verse separates it. You know, Genesis 16, verse 16, and Genesis 17, verse 1, 13 years of silence pass. 13 years of wondering. 13 years of thinking, I know God said that this promise was unconditional, but maybe this was just too big of a failure. 13 years of asking questions if this was all for naught, if he left everything and now he's going to get nothing. 13 years. Who here has waited for him? That's a long time. Now that we've got the weight of this, let's read again Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. So God shows up after 13 years of silence, and he defines himself as God Almighty. In Hebrew, this is El Shaddai. If you know the old song, El Shaddai, we're not going to sing it. It's not going to happen this morning. Those of you who know the song is great. Those of you who don't know the song, like, what is he talking about? It's going to be okay. We're going to get past it eventually. So this moniker, this God Almighty, this El Shaddai, from Genesis to Malachi, all the Hebrew scriptures, all the texts that were written and how God has revealed himself before Jesus, this description of God shows up 50 times in the Hebrew scriptures. It's extraordinarily significant, and it's literally translated God of the mountains. This is where it's fun, okay? Because when you think about ancient Near Eastern concepts and how they thought about the world, things that were higher vertically were closer to the heavens. They were seen as more holy. They were seen as more heavenly. They were seen as more powerful. So what is the highest thing you can think of and the most powerful thing you can think of when you begin to compare the strength of an amazing God that is outside of our concept of imagination, you compare it to the most powerful thing that there is and the tallest thing that's in creation, the thing that's closest to the heavens. He is the God of the mountains. Powerful. Is it any coincidence that when God approaches Moses, it's at a burning bush side of a mountain. Is it any coincidence that when God gives commands and promises, on the top of Mount Sinai. There's something powerful and astounding about this God who has created out of nothing, spoke it into being the one who cursed them so that they might hunger back for the life that is full rather than being satisfied with an empty life. This is the God who brought the flood in order to eradicate all the intense violence and destruction that was being perpetuated on his world. This is the God who disrupted the Tower of Babel. This is the God of untold power. And after 13 years, he shows up. He's been watching all this time as he's been watching even throughout. And when he appears before Abram, he describes himself as the God of the mountains. Powerful. So back to our initial question. Why is the Bible, the best audience? Is it because the God of the Bible is all-powerful? Is it because, is he like playing a massive power play, kind of saying, hey, if I'm not audience, beware? Well, kind of, actually, and it doesn't make us feel extraordinarily comfortable, but that's not the main emphasis of the text. There is something that is extraordinarily daunting about the creator of the universe coming before Abram. In all of his power. But the, the most astounding reason why he is the best audience isn't because he just has power. That's important. But what's really important, what makes him the best audience is how he uses that power. And to understand that 
reading in our text. Look with me, Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless. Now, there are two commands here that are together, and we're going to look of them, okay? The first one is walk before me. I like the way that the CSB translates this Hebrew idiom. It's, a, it's an idiom, okay, that's captured. And the way the CSB translates it is live in my presence. Live in my presence. Now, for some of us, at least for me, when I first read live in my presence, I felt like this was a call to constantly be on. You know, like when you have somebody over to your house for dinner, and everybody has to be on, like the kids better be smiling, everything better be right, you got to do an active listening, like you got takes a ton of energy, you feel like you're performing, where's the dog, the dog's down in the kennel, because the dog doesn't know how to be on, but everybody else, they know how to be, listen to a sad picture, everybody else is like on, we're ready to go, this is the best foot forward, always, okay, and when they leave the door, now kids get disciplined, because like, what were you thinking, but when you're there, you're on, and it's exhausting, and for some of us, you can hear, live in my presence. Like, before the presence of God, this is like the performance of a lifetime, always on stage, never resting. But that's not the picture being painted here. See, God is not some cosmic cop who's sitting around the corner, ready to speeding. Not the judge there at your band rehearsal, waiting for you to screw up so you can get that lower mark. That's not what we see on display here. Instead, this is the God who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day before there was shame, before there was sin. This is the God that we see who walked with Enoch. And so in his delight with God and God's delight with him, God took him such that he didn't even taste death. God who walked with Noah, who in his walking with him, God celebrated his life and actually preserved him from the destruction of the world. You see, some interpreters have gone to this idiom that's here in the Hebrew about this walking before me and translated it way more interestingly as, as walking before my face. There's nothing more interesting right up in his face. God's intimacy. To know, to be known by the Creator God. Walk with him to live in his presence. Yes, he is an audience, but he's much more like when my kids come before me when I'm sitting at the table. Sometimes I'll be sitting, Allie and I'll be sitting at the table after breakfast, sipping some coffee on, on Fridays, my, my day off, and I'll be sitting there, and then the kids will come in because they've been working on this skit or this play, and they'll come in, and, and they'll start acting it out, and Israel's mind is like, way deep into the story. Like, he's so imaginative. He's like, it's spiders are all over the place. And you just want to watch his face. Ava's very much on the lines. You know, like, you can just see their personalities as they're trying to bring this skit together. But at the end of the day, they're not trying to be perfect. They just want to bring something to their dad. And they want to have this really delightful moment together. At the end of the day, they want to see me smile. I have a hug in the end. If they even make it to the end, half the time. I end up laughing. We don't even know what this was about. But it's all good, right? We've had an amazing moment 
connection where we know at the end of the day, that's what matters. It's the love that we've shared and walking through this life together. That's what God is inviting us into is this walking together, this living with him, this invitation to intimacy. Yes, he's all powerful, but he's so incredible to you and I. Now, back to our question. Is the reason the best audience is because the God of the Bible? I think that's part, once again, this is mosaic, but it's not the full picture. It's so unbelievable that he wants to give. And it comes in the understanding of the second command. Look with me again, Genesis 17. Walk before me, be blameless, right? Now, what comes into your mind when you hear the word blameless? Perfection, right? It's like this moment of where your life is all buttoned up to the top. You're doing the right thing in the right place all the time. It can be this overwhelming, well, man, if I'm supposed to be blameless, if I'm in front of you, if I have to be absolutely perfect, oh, that's, that's crushing. So is that what some theologians would sometimes do called the, you know, the idea that you are going to find any relief just run to the cross? So you're just going to need the cross here. God is not actually expecting Abram to live into that. No. Do we need the cross over our sins and our trespasses? Absolutely. What God is inviting Abram to here is so much than just a setup to fail. It all comes in of what this word blameless means. The word behind the English translation blameless is the Hebrew word tome. Tome does not mean perfection. It does not mean perfection. Tome has the idea of wholeness, of integration, of all the parts coming together as they ought to. You see, tome is more than doing. It's about who you are rather than doing the right things. So, think about supposed to just like command myself to be something different. And this is where this is really important in how we understand these two commands, walk before me and be blameless and how they work together. Now from a modern Western framework, when we come to the text, sequential reading of these two commands. What does that mean? That means both of these commands are something I have to own I have to somehow get myself in God's presence and then simultaneously while I'm there, I've got to make myself whole. That's a sequential reading of these two commands. There's another way of reading this, that an ancient Near Eastern Hebrew speaker would have understood and understood when they heard this text. These two commands. Meaning, if you obey the first command, the second is a consequence, right? If you obey the first command, the second is the outcome. In other words, living your life in the presence of your creator God, when you're walking with him, when you're consumed and delighting in him, he is the one who produces wholeness in you. He begins to integrate your life. What does that look like? That means that there is... No various personas of Gabe. 
That means if I'm living before one audience in every sphere of my life, there's not like a particular Gabe that puts on the pastor hat when I'm here on stage. You know, at home, Gabe, when Gabe's a little different, he's a dad. Don't be around Gabe when he's in dad mode. Like, don't, you know, there's no, like, husband Gabe or neighbor Gabe. There's just Gabe. Because I have one audience who's looking over every sphere of my life, and I'm not constantly manipulating myself to fit within somebody's perspective of what might make them happy. When you really lean into this audience of one living in his presence, that means hypocrisy goes by the wayside because you don't have one face over here and another face over there. Duplicity goes by the wayside. Lie and fragmentation. And instead you see an integration of your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, and all of your various relationships becoming whole. God begins to do something deep within you. This is so consistent across the pages of have the power to change ourselves but we know the one who can change us and work within us and grow wholeness within us you know what this wholeness feels like if you're a runner i'm a runner if you're a runner this wholeness feels like a perfect spring day mid-70s going through your hair and you just feel all of your body just working together in a perfect synergy as you're going and you just lose yourself in the run and you are on the top of a runner's high. It is amazing. Everything is interconnected, integrated, and moving forward. It's a delight. If you like to cook, it's like after you've made a six-course meal or whatever, you know, and you go from one course to the next with they're integrated and in telling a whole story. And when you get to the end, you're not stuffed and you're not longing. You're full. You're complete. It's like the most innocent of long embraces. It feels right. Within us in the moment. Well, how is this still a commitment? How is this? Presence, God's commands don't burden that you're walking in the right direction with him. How are you going to love your enemies? That's not something you just conjure up within you. That's something that God does within you such that when you do begin to love even your enemies, it's a reminder that God is the one who's working through you. So when you hear this command, be, you know, walk and be blameless, when you start to experience wholeness with him, Comes a signpost that you're headed in the right direction and you're walking alongside of him. And the new de- destination is astounding. Now, when you look in our text here, there's something really important to understand about names. In the ancient Near East, names weren't just like someone in the midst of a crowd, like saying, hey, Joe, and he'd be like, hey, that's me. You know, like, you know, just identity. Names of meaning. And is it, isn't it astounding that here, unbelievable invitation to a new intimacy, a deeper intimacy with God, God changes Abram's name. The name Abram actually means exalted father or highly exalted father, but it wasn't talking about Abram. Most scholars agree that this is pointing back to his past. That's pointing to Terah. The Terah was the high exalted father. And so Abram's name, whenever he spoke it, it was pointing back to but when God changes his name, he gives him the name Abraham, which is pointing to a different. I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations. 
Christians. So now when his name is spoken, it doesn't point back to what he left, but forward to what God is still to do in his walk with him. You see how significant this is? And he's going to make him... ...into their image bearing, leaning into their then we become fruitful. And what about their kings and queens? That exercising dominion over God's world. What God is saying here is when you walk with me, I'll give you the life that you are designed But I will be with you and I'll be cultivating wholeness within you. This is what I long for you to experience. the best audience. It's not just powerful. It's not just because he's all welcoming. Here's one of the most compelling reasons why the God of the Bible can make you whole. If the audience determines the life you live, God leverages his power. He opens wide his arms, not to control and to be manipulative, but, but wholeness and to integrate your life. This is the heart of our God on display across the whole of Scripture. You and me, inviting us to intimacy that produces integrity rather than chasing after integrity, hoping to find intimacy. A God of grace and love consistent from Genesis to Revelation. Why wouldn't we want that? Why wouldn't we want him to be the audience over every sphere of our life? Now, some of you are going, Gabe, I'm there. I get it. But how do I actually cultivate, live as though I have an audience of one? Great question. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of things that we could say, but one of the things that is maybe most countercultural that God invites Abram to here, he's inviting you and I to, that he longs for you and I to do, and it's this, obscurity over popularity. What does that mean? What is, what is, choose obscurity over popularity. That means leveraging your energy and your time most for what God is doing in here where no one can see rather than leveraging all your time and your energy to just create a facade for what everyone else can see. It's not to say that what other people see is unimportant, but when we think about what's most important, it's what God is doing in the hidden recesses of our heart is of absolute importance to God's program in the world. Now, what's interesting is the invitation to intimacy that we see in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, and God's promises he makes in Genesis 4, there's a hinge verse here in Genesis 17, 3. Look with me. Then Abram fell on his face. After 13 years of obscurity, God shows up. It's no one else is around. No hype, no fanfare. Actually, a lot of scholars will say that this is basically a coronation ceremony. This is what God is saying. You will now carry out this dominion almost in a king-like role. So your offspring will be kings. But there's no crowd. There's no group around. There's not God making this amazing facade of who Abram is. He's doing something within Abram. And when no one's looking, Abram gets down on his knees and he puts his face in the dirt. I was just trying to think, like, when's the last time I even kneeled when I pray? When's the last time you did anything with your body other than just out in a chair? I, that's like, that's a conviction for me. I, seriously. I know it's kind of humorous, but 
one else is around. It's just him and God. And his whole body carries forth a posture of humility. him to one of the most unbelievable I think sometimes when it comes to our prayers, our desires, our goals in life, it's that God would make us something great. See, but listen. forming you into a whole person from the inside out than he is to giving you this astounding persona for the world to see. And obscurity is where God forms wholeness best. Now, I want to be very clear, too. Like, some of you may be thinking, like, hey, Gabe, I've been on this walk for a while, and I don't know if wholeness would be what I would describe as my life. I, I I do think what's really important here is to see a long trajectory. God cultivates this wholeness over time. I don't want anybody in here to feel like they've got buyer's remorse. It's like, hey, I bought this, and now where's my wholeness? It's like, and think like it's like a text message or an email, instant gratification. No, this is much more like watching grain grow. It's like building a chair from raw materials rather than a toy a vending machine. It's a long obedience in the same direction. A long walk that cultivates this wholeness. Obscurity is God's workshop. You know, when Allie and I first got married, it was about a year in, we had this amazing opportunity to go with my parents to Italy. They said, hey, if you carry our bags, we'll pay for stuff. I said, what else do you want me to carry? Um, and so we went to Italy. Uh, <clears throat> and while we were there, we went to Venice. And we went into one of the most astounding glass shops I've ever seen. Floor to ceiling. Uh, there were champagne, there was dinner, uh, air, vases, and then they even, so for us, you know, just graduating seminary, they had a candy dish. A nice little candy dish, but look at how beautiful that is. I mean, intricate detail, and I'm really nervous I'm going to drop this, so I'm going to put this back in the bag here in a second. Allie said, drop it. I said, deal. So here this is. I mean, extraordinary detail. Imagine a whole shop, like a whole house. Filled floor to ceiling with ornate glasswork that just truly is astounding and really terrifying if you don't have a big budget and afraid you're going to try. While we were there, they were giving us the tour. I want to show you something. That so they brought us to the back, brought us down these stairs to really the most part of the building. There was a furnace. Master grass glass worker and he takes these raw materials and he puts it on the end of this long metal pipe and he sticks it back whole building he puts it right in front of us it's so easy to walk into the storefront and say this is all pounding i'd love to have some more of this but go back in the most obscure of spots of the building, that's where the true masterpieces are made. And it's same with God. Obscurity is God's workshop before it's on display for popularity. This is why Jesus emphasizes praying in secret. This is why Jesus emphasizes doing good works in secret. This is why Jesus says, I'm only doing what I see my Father in heaven doing. He's got one audience. This is why Jesus emphasizes the heart again, again, rather than just the public action. But what's going on behind the hidden recesses of our heart? It's no coincidence. It's this relationship, this intimacy, from who becomes Abraham, is 
circumcision, that's hidden from the naked eye, that rarely comes out, but in the very most intimate of situations. A hidden sign. Listen, if you chase after popularity, you're going to find yourself slave to constantly maintaining these various personas from to different audiences. You're going to be anxiously hungry for each word of affirmation, or you're going to be exhausted, exhausted to appease the Liberating, but also simultaneously constraining. It's unbelievably freeing, but it comes at great cost. Nine is not a small price to pay. And yet, when wholeness is what's offered, then anything's worth it. Anything. So let me ask you this morning where are you choosing popularity over obscurity? Where are your goals and desires shaped by cultural norms rather than the audience of one? How are you trying to appease the various audiences in your life rather than humbly seeking his face alone? Because listen, when you continue to chase down the road of popularity, the road and the destination is not a pretty one. It ends in destruction, and we've heard story and story, and we'll see them continually, actually, across the book of Genesis as well. Stories of destruction and pain. And when I think of my own life, I do think of the story my dad. Who actually hunger in plenty of these mugs that said all kinds of things like this. Best dad ever, father for the books, you know, all these things. But at the end of the day, it was a nice, shiny mug with an amazing title with substance. It looked good on the outside, but when you turned it, it was difficult. Instead of wholeness, you found emptiness. Eventually, everything fell apart. That's why I also can't let my audience. At the end of the day, if they are the sum total of what I'm shooting for, their approval, I'll never correct them when they need it. I'll never raise them to be the people that they need to be. I'll never be able to let them be angry at me when I stop them from running into ongoing traffic. I'll become everything I hate if my kids are my primary audience. Instead, it has to be him and him alone. And praise God, he has paved the way. He has made a way that for you and I, we can have a name just like Abraham did. Praise God, we can have a new destiny just like Abram did. And it doesn't come in just trying to do all the right things and white-knuckling it. Instead, it's walking with the right person and let him woo you to the best things. And when God became flesh in the person of Jesus, we hear the call not only to walk before him, but now to walk beside him. And in Matthew chapter 11, if there's a verse you ever want to memorize, this is a good one to do. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, Jesus echoes the words of his Father and invites us even into a deeper intimacy with him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who's your audience? 
Isn't it astounding that the one who invites us to know rest and knowing him then simultaneously went before the crowds and died one of the most shameful of deaths? Instead of chasing after the fame of popularity, became the scorn of Jerusalem and died one of the most horrendous deaths on the cross, his body torn apart so that we might be made whole. If the audience you choose determines the life you live, why not choose this audience? The one who's all-powerful, all-welcoming, and the reason he leverages all of that is for the flourishing of his creation, for you, for me, that we might know wholeness, what we so deeply long for. Why not live before him, with him? He longs to live with you, to be known by you.